I'm excited to handle the word with you this morning, but really, if there's ever been a time and there's ever been a subject upon which I'm not coming to preach at you, I'm actually coming to share with you as one of you. Um, It's this one. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. A couple of questions for us. Does anybody struggle with your own sanctification? If you do, go ahead and raise your hand. You can raise your hand. It's honesty time. Yeah. We live a lot of our lives like we don't want to let people know that we do. Um, But I want you to know that there's nobody more dissatisfied with where I am spiritually than I am. That caused me to do all kinds of things. If people push against that, I'm passive-aggressive, so I get really defensive. So when you hear me get really defensive, you can probably be pretty close to sure that you're pushing on the right spot. So I do. I I get defensive whenever... It begins to be revealed that I'm not as spiritual as I ought to be. Uh, The other thing that we tend to do is compensate then. If I know that to be true, how am I going to live every day? Well, the last thing I want is to create a life where you see it and you push on it. So I'm going to compensate. I'll put all kinds of flowers around it. (laughs) And the reality is this. We are concerned about where we are spiritually And we actually give it a lot of work, but I think we exhaust ourselves putting all the work into the wrong places. I put it into making sure the flowers that cover your ability to see it look really good. Or in my ability, I think through how I'm going to defend this if somebody pushes on on an issue like that. We're not all the same, so you might not do the same things. Okay, second question, and this one may make you as vulnerable. How many of you have actually watched and enjoyed the show alone? Anybody? Just a few, okay. Um, Not necessarily a show that I thought I would enjoy. Alone is basically taking a group of very skilled survivalists to an extreme place, allowing them to choose 10 objects and dropping them off for a minimum of 90 days. And they have to survive, build a place to live, find food to eat, and they're alone for those 90 days, the whole 90 days. They train them in how to use multiple video camera things, and they have to video themselves all day long. The show is really just clips that are edited from different people and what they've experienced. And um, We were watching a season of it recently, and someone that hadn't watched it before after watching a couple of times said, This is oddly addicting. And it is. It's not like like Survivor. I can't stand that sort of stuff. It actually is just what these people are doing. And one of the things that is remarkable to me, I've only watched two seasons of it, but one of the things that is remarkable to me is watching how people's thinking changes. They start out, they're survivalists, they're skilled, they know what they do, they think through priorities, I've got to find a place because I'm going to have to have shelter and I need to get food and I don't need food just for today, there's stuff that's not going to be here when it gets cold, so if I can get it and store it up, and they think through all of these things, and by the time the show is over, they're actually talking about what matters to them, what they've neglected. This season in particular, as it got down to like the last four, every one of them was talking about, you know, 
I really love my parents. Wow, you know what? I can't. The reason I'm going to go home is not because I'm hungry. It's because I cannot stand being away from my kids. It's just really interesting to watch how whenever all of the normal things of life, the distractions, the preoccupations, all are reduced down to a bare minimum, where people return to in their thinking. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about our thinking. Paul writes here in the book of Ephesians, he gets to the latter part of his, of his book, as he often does, he'll turn more to application, and so really, that, that's what he does in the book of Ephesians, and he's going to talk here about the church and unity in the church, but coming out of that expression, really at the beginning of this fourth chapter, he's going to turn from kind of corporate understanding to looking at individual responsibilities in light of that corporate, in fact, he's going to say, you know what, this is how the church should be, but you can't get there if individually you're broken like this. And so he's going to turn to a passage that we often capture with two little expressions, put off and put on, and they're very real there. But there is a, a, an essential truth that is at the core of putting on and putting off. So I'll ask you another question. Has anybody really worked hard, endeavored, pursued, labored at the putting off and putting on only to find yourself in a cycle that deepens your frustration? I put off, I put off, I put off, I put off. I try to put on, I put on, I put on, and all of a sudden I find that somewhere somebody put the clothes back on that I was taking off. Sometimes I think we reduce the sanctification process down to the simple expression. And sometimes, in fact, I read one author that, that actually verbalized what he thinks Paul is saying here with this phrase. It's just stop it. Don't you wish you could just stop it? Thankfully, Paul actually, by way of inspiration, gives us a whole lot more than an angry command to just stop it. The Bible says an awful lot about our minds. I shared with a friend the other day, when I was young, I'd get in trouble for not thinking. So you know all the expressions, I just wasn't thinking. That was mindless. Now that I'm old, I get in trouble for thinking. And I'm not sure which one is better. So just a, a smattering of verses that are common to us. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. Finally, brothers, Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, that which is excellent, those things that are worthy of praise, think on these things. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep him in perfect peace, whose what? Mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. 
2 Corinthians chapter 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy, listen, arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And do what? And take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, destroying the arguments and all these lofty opinions by taking our thoughts captive. Philippians 2, 5, have this mind among yourselves. Colossians 3, if you then be raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. Matthew 22, 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your Mine, Psalm 19, 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. First Peter 1, therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Romans 1, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Romans 8, 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. I ask you this question. How often do you think about what you think about? In this passage of Scripture, we're going to see clearly a section of put off and clearly a section of put on. We'll look, I want us to see the Christ-less mind, and I want us to see the Christ-like mind, and in the middle of them, I want us to see the cross. Just three simple points. I think we understand that in salvation there is a transformational transaction that is absolutely necessary. We describe it with all kinds of transactional terms like redemption or justification. It's what we speak of as salvation. There is an essential transactional, transformative process that God has accomplished for us that when we embrace it by faith and repentance, He then starts a transformative work in us. But secondly, there is also a transformational process that brings about the progressive change in God's people where we move from what Paul describes here as an old man to actually expressing a new man in Christ. We refer to it as progressive sanctification. Today I want us to explore that because I think we are prone to address our energies to the wrong place with regard to how we should be changing. So in both halves of this section, Paul addresses the mind. I want you to see how he sets up this stark comparison. So let's start by looking first at verse 17. Paul there describes the lost person as walking in the futility of their minds. It's a colossal concept. There's something that is impacting, even controlling the way they walk, and it's a mind that he describes with this concept of futility. The word mind there... There's a Greek word, nous, generally it means this, the mind, the intellect, and depending on the context and usage, it refers to a person's understanding, their attitude, their thoughts, or their beliefs. It is a central controlling core. So used here as a genitive of association, it refers to a complex mental state involving beliefs, 
feelings, values, and dispositions to act in a certain way. He is going to the core of mankind. Here is the source from which you do what you do and why you do what you do. And so he goes right to the core and he says, hey, they live a certain way. They walk a certain way. And the reason they do is they have a certain complex of beliefs and values and dispositions to actions. And it is the core of who they are. And actually, Paul is not saying, now that's very different for believers. Believers have a different way that they know they actually are the same. All of us live the way we live because this is our core. And he's going to describe theirs, and then he's going to talk about ours. So how does he describe theirs? He uses the word futility. It's a really interesting Greek word. It means this, useless as a consequence of being purposeless or incapable of producing results. Why do they live the way they live? Because we are controlled by a core, and for them, that core is purposeless and incapable of of producing results. In other words, there's a sense of futility just in the expression that they live the way they live, because they think the way they think, but there's more than that. They can't help the way they live because they can't help the way they think. And he's actually going to give us incredible detail about that. And what is interesting in this passage of Scripture is that he is challenging believers to be renewed in the spirit of their mind. Why? Because you can live that way, but you don't have to. That's why the cross is in the middle. And so look then at verse 23 because I want you to see the comparison. He talks about and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The word renewed there, ananeao, used here as a substantival infinitive, has this sense to be or become reestablished in a like new and often improved manner. He says you actually can think differently. You can believe differently. And I want you to actually get a phrase that I'll now begin to use throughout the rest of this message. You actually can have a very different value system. That's actually what he's describing as empty and purposeless. Their value system. It can be renewed And then he uses this word spirit. A person's emotional dispositions here are considered collectively and understood by the seat of emotional faculties or what we call the soul. So you heard Garrett say, what made your hand do that? Your brain did. Well, what told your brain to do that? Your heart. That's exactly what he's addressing. There is a seat in man where our value system rests. And God, by His Spirit, is in the process of transforming that value system. But it is a system that can progress and can regress depending upon how we inform it. So I ask you this question. How are you continually informing your value system? 
Our pastor about three weeks ago challenged us to do something other than just read, you know, a short 10-minute devotional. He wasn't downplaying that, but he was saying, you know what, we need to give concerted effort to actually reading lots of Scripture. Why? Because I check a box and say, now I'm really spiritual. I move from 15 minutes of reading to 30. Or because somehow I actually am a better person because I can say how much I read this. Absolutely not. It is because this is the substance of how I ought to be informing my value system. Friend, if you are not filling your mind with Scripture, you have an uninformed value system, and that leaves you spiritually vulnerable because something is going to inform your value system. And if you don't fill it with the Scripture, you're going to inform it the way the Gentile does. So notice, then he uses this word, mind. That which is responsible for one's thoughts and feelings, especially the seat of the faculty of reason. This is the place where I determine right and wrong. Friends, we are living in a day where the world's value system is driven at one issue. You say, oh, it's right and wrong. They want to commit to me what's right and wrong. No, they don't. They want to convince you of what's normal. Because what we accept at normal becomes the basis for what we think is right and wrong. And if we don't inform our value system, we actually will accept as normal that which God says is abnormal. And we'll live our lives with all kinds of passion and purpose and we'll live it with all kinds of conviction and don't even realize that we've allowed the compass to be adjusted and we live with all of this passion and all of this purpose but we're actually pursuing something as normal that God says is not normal. And thus we live our lives and we could end up living our lives based upon a purposeless mind and living with great passion and be wrong. It is absolutely essential for a man who will pursue Christ-likeness to passionately fill his mind with God's truth because it's only there that we get God's mind on what is normal. And you see, that basis of normalcy is what then informs our ethics. To put it in simple terms, if we don't inform our minds with Scripture, we will live as though fallen Adam is normal rather than second Adam. So think of the bent of our media today. Do you sit around and watch all kinds of shows that make the argument for why different lifestyles than what we see described morally in the Scriptures are right? Are you hearing those arguments? That's not what I hear. All I see is a presentation that it's normal. And if I so fill my mind with that presentation of what is normal, I may not even realize it, but what I know to be normal biblically is actually becoming eroded in a way that I tolerate it as normal. And without even thinking about it, my value system is being shaped so what I think about shapes how I think 
Sounds simple. What I think about shapes how I think. The relative value of the things that I think about. The relative value of the things that I think about, their worthiness, their ethical value, their moral quality, both shapes my capacity to think as well as my appetite for what I think about. You see, Paul doesn't stop here in Ephesians with simply saying, make a decision. Yes, he's very clearly going to speak to action, and he's very clearly going to speak to volition, the will. But he doesn't leave us there. Say, all you've got to do is make a decision. He actually calls us to a, pro- a process. So I ask you this question. What kind of thoughts am I having? A second question. What have I been thinking about that has led to those kind of thoughts? And do those thoughts actually reflect what I really believe? Those are three big questions. One on one side and one on the other. You get honest with yourself and say, okay, what have I been thinking about? And then I walk up to you and I say to you, hey, tell me what you believe. And you share with me what you believe. Does what you've been thinking about actually reflect what you believe? And friends, I'm finding that with sanctification, this is actually the struggle. I'm struggling because this is what people see. And I really would love to see that change. But I'm not struggling with what I think about because people don't see it. But it really doesn't match what I believe when you ask me. I ask, what do you believe? Is immorality wrong? Absolutely. What have you been thinking about? Is death, murder, darkness, despair, is that wrong? Oh, absolutely it is. What have you been thinking about? And what has informed that thinking? I believe that every believer should search the Scriptures and answer for themselves the question, as a redeemed child of God, what should I know, think, and do? This question is the key to finding God's answer to the question, how can I live a life of wisdom or stated differently? How can I live a life that is pleasing to the Lord? Wisdom literature points out four dynamic characteristics of living with wisdom. They are knowledge, understanding, discretion, discernment, and wisdom. And these parallel the no think and do requirements for a godly life. Knowledge equals no. Understanding and discretion equal think. And wisdom equals do. This is why we must be in the Word. What should I know? I find it in the Word. Well, how should I understand it? I find it in the Word. And how should I live it out skillfully? By taking the Word and applying it to the affairs of life. That's wisdom. So here's an axiom. You must change what you think in order to change how you think. And you must change how you think in order to successfully change how you live. It's true that Paul challenges the Ephesian believers to change their behaviors by putting off and putting on. But he doesn't just call them to make a decision to do something different. He doesn't merely say, just stop it. Paul calls these believers and all believers to pursue a transformed life through transformed thinking. 
And so Paul is going to describe a pathway of living that is affected by a process of thinking. He describes the way the Gentiles live by addressing the way the Gentiles think, and then he calls for a change in believers' lives that comes from being renewed in the spirit of your minds, transformed thinking. So let's look in Ephesians 4 then at what he does in developing these thoughts. And so simply, the Christless mind, the cross, and the Christ-like mind. Paul writes this in verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Notice how he follows that up and explains what he's talking about. I'll highlight the words. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Where does the sensuality bent and the greediness for impurity come from? It comes because of what is going on in their mind. What is interesting as Paul lays this out for us is he actually is calling them to not be living this way because they stop thinking this way. And what we need to see is this. This wasn't a pill we took when we accepted Jesus. And it wasn't a process that stopped because I got saved. Oh, great, now all that thinking is gone. I'm just going to think differently. The opportunity is there, but I actually have to do something to think differently. Does God bring about the possibility of a change in my value system when I get saved? Yes. In fact, the possibility that's not there without Jesus. But did he change all my values the moment I got saved? No, he didn't. But he can, and he will, and they should be. And I think this is where sometimes with our sanctification we feel this frustration. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I should be doing it. And somehow I find myself continuing to do it. And the reality is because there's a value that hasn't yet changed. So here he's going to point out the way they think and help us to see we shouldn't be thinking that way. Because bad thinking leads to bad belief which results in bad behavior. Bad thinking leads to bad belief, which results in bad behavior. So look at how he breaks this down. I want us to see the why of the, the Christless walk. The why of the Christless walk. Notice, the first thing he points out is that there's a, a, a faulty motivation. Futility there actually speaks of good for nothing or emptiness in their notions. There's an inclination towards that which is valueless from God's perspective. The lost man, in a sense, when he comes to the place in life where he is confronted with God's reality, makes a choice. Romans 1 tells us that. And in that choice, he chooses one thing over another. And Romans 1 points out that he chooses to reject the knowledge of God. Why? Because there's something else that he values. By the way, that was every one of us. And the problem is that now that we're saved, we know there's something else that we value, but we still value this. I still value me. 
And that is the core value that has to change in everything. The end of this passage, he's going to say things about relational dynamics where you see the juxtaposition of good and bad. Don't let corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. Be kind one to another. You hear all of these values. Do you realize that they're tearing down the idol of self? It's a change in value. They have faulty motivations. There's something else that drives them. So many believers, unfortunately, in this regard, live as practical atheists. If this doesn't change, you will actually find new expressions through which you carry out this value. So why now, as a married believer with children in my home who I want certain things for and I want certain things from, will I choose to live the way I'm going to live as a believer? Do you realize you could live that way passionately because you want them to respect you? I want a wife who loves me. I want a wife who treats me right. I want a wife who admires me. She's a believer. I'm a believer. She's not going to admire me for my incredible physique. She's not going to admire me for my unbelievable mind. She's not going to admire me for my beautiful car. I know what she'll admire me for. She'll admire me if she thinks I'm spiritual. So I'm going to be spiritual. Why? Because I want her to admire me. You say, wow, really? You that carnal? Every bit. You say, oh, my wife knows me too well. That won't work for me. No, that's probably true. But if you've tried it with your wife, you're probably doing it with everybody else. And then you wonder why you feel so frustrated over your sanctification. Could it be that you haven't gotten any further than your core motivation for why you do what you do? Faulty? Feudal? Mind? Our young people just came back from Utah, right? You encountered all kinds of people doing all kinds of good things for all the wrong reasons, correct? People who are passionately pursuing a lifestyle that will lead them to hell with all the passion and more than we have. And it's all for faulty motivation. And you look at the religions of the world, whether they be because I do really want to spend eternity with God in heaven, or I want a a harem when I get there, or I want a, a palace when I get there, or whatever the reasons might be, they may be different, but every expression of human religion that is contrary to God's plan of redemption through Christ and grace has this, a futile thinking. The motivation is wrong. But then notice it is furthered not just by this faulty motivation, it's furthered by a fogged comprehension being darkened in their understanding. There is in men a moral understanding because of common grace and the image of God in man. His ability to choose right and wrong becomes increasingly fogged as a man turns away from truth. They seek to do wrong because they cannot discern what is right. And the more wrong choices a man makes, the more prone he is to making wrong choices. What's worse, the first lie or the second lie? You say, well, they're both lies. They are. But is lying progressive? 
I found it to be. I had a choice to make, and it was a simple one at the first lie. I had a choice to make at the second lie, and it was much more complex. You see, I believe it's at the point of making the second lie that I am deciding whether or not I'm going to be a deceiver. It was transactional. It was just an issue. I don't want to deal with that right now, so I don't tell the truth. But at the next place, there's now a confrontation with who I am, and I have a decision to make. And at that point, I begin to do what this passage says. I'm going to fog my understanding. I'm interjecting other things into the process of making a decision. So let me ask you, how have you handled it when you've been confronted with your pornography? Because you see, those are issues that somehow we just compartmentalize, and that's something I do over there, but I live the rest of my life. And the reality is this, as I begin to be confronted with that, either by the Holy Spirit of God or by a loving brother or sister in Christ, I am now going to respond to it. And at that point, I am making a decision about my understanding. And it's actually the process that God says the lost man goes through. Sometimes that looks just like the process of justification. You don't know what's going on in my life. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes it just looks way more pragmatic. Right now I don't think I need to get into that because I still think I can deflect enough to keep you from thinking that it's, it's not really happening. So I'll, I'll deal out here But if it gets to the place where that gets dismissed and and it really is happening, I now will go to a different level. And what I am doing is I am continually fogging my understanding, my ability to actually think rightly about it. He says that comes from inborn ignorance because of the ignorance that is in them. That though man has a moral understanding, it is marred by an innate ignorance due to the fall. It is in man to worship, but not to worship God. We are born with a spirit of disobedience that leads us away from worshiping God. So think about how men think about moral issues. It's a reflection of the ignorance that is in his present soul. And then it's furthered by hardness. And I hope even in walking through those, you're feeling this process, even in them. You know what? You don't go very long raising children that are unsaved before you begin to see this process fleshed out in just the most simple things in life. But furthered by hardness, because of the hardness of their heart, and here the blindness of heart is literally described in a a, a tacit way. The word is literally a petrification, a turning to stone. It's used medically to denote the calcification which forms when a bone is broken and is reset, literally harder than the bone itself. And so we have a man born in spiritual ignorance, and when given the opportunity to respond to the light which God gives him, if that man rejects God, there's a hardening of his heart that occurs which makes him unable to respond to God, no matter how clear the message may be. And so Paul says here that the lost world lives with faulty motivations due to fogged comprehension from inborn ignorance furthered by a hardness of heart. It's a process. 
And what is amazing is that we walk through that. We all see it. We all feel the weight of it. The shocking thing is that Paul says to us here, and you shouldn't think that way. And he says it because we do. Because we do. And so he describes these people in light of that thinking as being given to sensuality, gravitating to all impurity, and greedy for more. Thus, it drives the expressions of their lives. Is this what's driving you? Thankfully, then, he brings us secondly to the cross. Look at verse 20. If you feel the weight of what he said and you're actually feeling it by saying, oh, yeah, I shouldn't be thinking that way, but I am. Verse 20 comes to you as a colossal breath of fresh air and hope. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through notice deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is a dramatic crossroads. A crossroads that actually walks us backwards from the process that says, yes, I want to stop doing what I'm doing. And to do that, I need to stop loving what I'm loving. And to do that, I need to change what I'm actually thinking about. And notice that this spiritual crossroads finds its intersection at Calvary. Verse 21 is actually an incredibly descriptive pro, uh, passage on the process of salvation. Verse 20 says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. You see, if the nature of the teaching which you received was according to that which is truth in Christ, if you received it into yourselves when you listened to the teaching of the gospel, since that is what is true in your union with and life in Jesus, the Son of God manifest in the flesh, put off. The transaction of Calvary makes it possible. When you look at this transaction... It actually is not, Paul is not actually calling us to go back there and say, that's not what I do. He actually is taking us back to Calvary and he is saying, that's not who I am in Christ. That whole process of getting to what my value system is, that's not who I am. That's not what I learned in Christ. I didn't, in a sense, go through that transaction so that I, with a sense of relief, could live the way I've always lived. That's not what it was about. That's not what you learned. It's actually about being totally transformed. It's about looking at that and saying, yeah, I, I shouldn't live that way. And I shouldn't love those things. And Calvary gave me the opportunity for that all to change. 
it actually empowers then the ability to change. And so he talks about this reception, and I think it's very important that, that we get what that is. That this wasn't a decision that somehow I encountered Jesus and I decided to be a good thing to add him to my life. It's a no-holds-barred, unconditional, exclusive acceptance of a thing. Reception is based upon the fact that you listened to, heard, and understood the teaching of the gospel. This word to listen to here is a really interesting word. It means to receive news of, to give heed to and understand, to give a hearing or, if you will, a judicial hearing. There was truth that was processed, and in processing that truth, I said, that is right. And that is not. And that's what it means to receive Jesus here in this passage of Scripture. And in light of that decision, now it affects the way I should live, the way I should think. This is the crossroads. So I ask you this question. Have you met Jesus at the crossroads? Have you actually come to the place where you process the need of the gospel in your life and the provision of God in the life of Christ and you accepted that you absolutely needed his death, burial, and resurrection in order for you to be right with God? In doing so, have you repented of not just the sins that you have done and felt guilty of, but your sinfulness? I am a sinner and I needed a righteous Savior. This is the crossroads. And you can see how that decision shapes the rest of how I live. So there's part of this that Paul is calling us to go back to the crossroads. Wait, wait, wait. My life is messed up. I've gotten to the place where I find that my values have been adjusted and they're not what I learned in Christ. And I'm living this life of defensiveness and covering and sensitivity and a sense of futility. What should I do? I need to go back to Calvary and say, what happened here? And I need to renew the decision. That's right, I was wrong. That's right, I was broken. That's right, I had wrong values. And I had to abandon them to accept Christ as my only hope. And that's where this whole process needs to start. That's how this process needs to be re-engaged. And thus, in our last couple of minutes, I want us to look at the end of this passage at the Christ-filled mind. Verse 22 says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. He's getting now into the heart. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Literally, he says, with regard to the way you used to live, separate yourself from your old lifestyle, which is in the process of being corrupted in accordance with the loss of deceit. And think differently. Living a new life, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So friends, really just two things. This new man, as Paul describes it here, is in the process of constant perfecting. 
constant perfecting. This is an ongoing struggle. So don't give up because of the struggle. That's what this spiritual wrestling match looks like. The word that he uses here is the word to mean to dress or to clothe, and it's in the middle voice. It means to be clothed, or more accurately, be being clothed. That we are to be constantly wrestling in the process of developing not just in righteousness and holiness in doing, but in righteousness and holiness in thinking. How often in your idle time do you intentionally choose to think about or to give your mind stuff that it can think about that actually furthers you in righteousness and holiness? How many shows do you watch that actually cause you to be challenged because of the right ethical decisions that are being made? How much content do you watch because what you are watching actually stimulates you to conviction about what is right morally? You see, this is a challenge for us today because we've never lived in a day where we have to process more information. So I ask you, how many hours a week do you spend on social media? And what do you actually process while you're there? You say, well, it really doesn't matter. No, just rethink about this word futile. Is that what it is? You're saying, you know, you know that stuff, that's just, it's just everyday stuff. All I'm doing is looking at people's lives, and there are people there that are influencers, but they don't influence me, right? So that, I mean, that, that doesn't count. And what you don't realize is your value system is being eroded because of the fact that you constantly bombard yourself with stuff that you acknowledge is worthless. And you are establishing in your mind a new normal that does affect the way you live. It does affect what you believe. And it eventually affects the way you behave. And if that is the case, what Paul says to us is, that's not how you learn Christ. It's not how you learned Christ as to what Christ was like, and it's not the process you went through when you learned Christ. Right? Remember the transactional nature of Calvary, that there was a process that said right, wrong, acknowledged? Is that how you process what you think about? Because, friends, there's no escaping that what I think about shapes my ability to think as well as my appetite for what I want to think about. And that appetite is what actually begins to fuel my values. So I share with you this morning my frustration with my sanctification. And I share with you a passage of Scripture that is incredibly convicting to me in two ways. On the negative, 
I am way too preoccupied with things that I absolutely should not be thinking about. And secondly, I don't have the preoccupation with God's truth that I should have. But friends, Paul also shares with us, we can have the mind of Christ. The question is, will I make the decisions to do what I need to do, to think the way I should think, so I can be who I should be? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. God, I pray that all of us would come to the altar today in our heart and bring there our minds. We're called to guard our heart for out of it are the issues of life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people that in our desire to pursue Christ, and I believe that's who we are, that we would look at what the pathway actually is and that you would lead us to make decisions that shape that pursuit for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.